Hi, this is Dr. Adrian Lowe, and today we'll be mapping pain neuroscience on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Adrian Lowe. Adrian earned his undergraduate master's degree and PhD in physiotherapy from the University of Stellenbosch in Cape Town, South Africa. He is an adjunct faculty member at St. Ambrose University and the University of Nevada, Los Angeles, and director of the Therapeutic Neuroscience Research Group studying pain neuroscience. Adrian has taught throughout the U.S. and internationally for 30 years at numerous conferences. He's authored over 100 peer-reviewed articles, and his PhD focused on pain neuroscience education. Adrian is a senior faculty pain science director and vice president of faculty experience for Evidence in Motion. Adrian, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thanks for having me. I really love how you break down the perception of pain. And I'm wondering if you can start us off by giving us some insight into that neuroscience. You know, very quickly understanding that we now know that the brain, you know, basically analyzes threat when it determines to produce a pain experience, which brings up the question about what is a threat. We typically think about threats of an injury, right? You injure yourself, the brain perceives a threat and it produces pain to grab your attention. But it's way more than that, right? Threats can be from emotional overload. It can be from, even for lack of a better term, memories. It can be very strongly driven by psychosocial variables. In the traditional model of medicine, we tie injury to pain or disease process to pain. But our brain, you know, has 100 billion neurons, give or take a few, that's constantly monitoring our body to try and figure out, you know, is there anything that I should be worried about? And the way to get its attention is to produce pain. And pain is this conscious construct by the brain to basically draw our attention in to get us to do something about it. Yeah, really good way of putting it. What's actually happening at the neuronal level? How are the signals working? Is there a portion of the brain that's responding? Is it all over the brain? What do we know about how we perceive pain? We made significant advances in the last 20, 30 years of brain scan imaging, but I want everybody to know that even with the brain scanning imaging, there's a lot of assumptions we're making, but the body of evidence is growing. Here's what we do know. For a long time, we thought there was one center in the brain that basically was the pain center, and, and we now know that's absolutely not true. 
Pain is a multi-distributed experience in a human brain. Simply stated that if I were to, and this is so terrible on a podcast, but if I were to punch you in the arm right now and we had your brain in a scanner, multiple areas would light up. There would be increased activity in the areas focusing on memory, your emotional areas, your sensory cortex, the motor areas, various different areas. And they will actually start communicating with each other and simply say that if I were to go into your head, pull that out, it forms this distributed network or neuro matrix is what it's referred to of a human experience, which is very unique to you. And that's why pain is so complicated because it's a unique experience, but it's this multi-experience, if you will, in the brain. It's not one area. Yeah. I love how you said it's multi-distributed. And my next question was going to be about that unique to me, unique to you part of it, that bio-individuality. Are there known factors that contribute to the differentiation in how we perceive pain? The list is extremely long. I mean, if you just start taking something like memory, right? When you sprain your ankle today, you will basically run through a memory data bank to think about what has happened every time you've sprained your ankle, good, bad, ugly, and how did you respond then? How should I respond now? There is context. There is, you know, do I currently enjoy my job or not? Is my favorite football team winning or losing? I mean, the contextual part becomes extremely complex. The biggest thing for me personally, I think that we're getting a lot of data on relates to the emotional areas of the brain. We now know that as pain increases over time, it shifts more to the emotional areas of the brain, which makes it even more challenging clinically for us. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think it's so important to recognize that when somebody is speaking about their pain, this is where I like to divide things from signs or symptoms, right? As clinicians, we can't measure somebody's pain in the clinical set, in most clinical settings, I should say, (laughs) without that MRI that you're talking about? Or do I have that wrong? Is there something more that we can do to measure pain besides those like smiley faces that go all the way to the red hot face? Yeah. First of all, the scans themselves are not, doesn't, I mean, we need to be very careful. We're inferring a lot of information. All we know is that if you undergo something which you perceive as painful, and when we scan you, there are areas in the brain that gets busy. And by the way, those areas can be inhibitory or facilitatory. So they can either be suppressing or increasing activity. So it's a little, even that is a little bit more complicated. The bottom line is we don't have painometers. So if I ask you what your pain was in seven, and I buzz you in the back and it goes, no, it's only five you're lying to me. Pain is a subjective expression of how something is influencing your life, which means innately it's true and it's 100% true to you. But we can infer things as well, though, because I mean, things like pressure pain algometry, we can measure to tell us how sensitive your nervous system is. And we do know that your nervous system sensitization is a potential indicator of how much threat the system is beginning to pick up or dealing with and those kinds of things. So By adding little pieces to the puzzle, we can start getting some inferences, but it's extremely individualized to you, to me, to my neighbor, et cetera. Yeah. And when we talk about that context, as you said, one of my favorite topics, context, but is that context influenced just by our lived life or are there antecedents that we may come into this world with that may influence our perception of pain that we know of. I mean, I guess that we know is the other part of that question. 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I mean, you know, we're almost getting down to the nature-nurture conversation here. We do know there is a very strong genetic linkage to pain. We do know that. Certain types of inflammation, neurotransmitters, gene expressions are powerfully driven genetic. You're born with a certain subset. But we do know the incredible power of epigenetics that is very powerful. But then if you go to the other side of it, though, there is strong behavioral aspects and parents driving it accordingly. Behaviors are very powerfully put in motion in our adolescent years. And so it's truly a balance between nature and nurture. There's genetic factors, but it can be influenced by behaviors, good and bad, by the way. A parent's influence strongly predicts pain experiences later on, those kind of things. So it's truly a little bit of everything. And, and you know, people always corner me and say, well, which one is it? If you had to pick, there literally is in the pain world right now a 50-50. You could probably lean one way or the other slightly, but not a lot. That's so fascinating. And when the behavior is studied in relationship to that nurture part of the conversation and our adolescence, are there certain behaviors in particular that are known to either enhance or inhibit our perception of pain? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we do know those that engage in risky behaviors, and this leads to some risk behaviors related to substance abuse, risky physical behaviors, et cetera, drives them closer towards potentially the pain side. We know that parents, for example, a parent's catastrophization with a child strongly, it's, it's what we would often refer to as a helicopter parent, strongly predicts a pain experience. But on the flip side, though, too, things like self-efficacy, there was a beautiful paper that just came out literally a month ago in PLOS One that talked about how kids that play contact sport are emotionally way healthier than kids that don't play sport, those kind of things. And it also ties to a pain experience. So it's social context. You know, we can talk about ACEs, adverse events in childhood, but very important that I want healthcare providers to know we never talk about paces and that's the positive things that happen. That healthcare provider, the teacher that says the warming welcome, like you're a good student, there's positive and negative in both directions, but early pain experiences strongly predict future pain experiences, if I just summarize that. Yeah. I mean, you're summarizing it well, and you're really bringing into our awareness that there's no quick way to think about this, that it really is more patient-centered. We have to go back to the individual and understand their full experience, not just in that moment of dealing with their pain, but their pain history. So what do you wish that we as clinicians knew about the research that's occurring so we can better support those who are experiencing pain. I think the idea that pain is a multi-dimension experience, that there are so many factors. And I think the critical thing that's becoming well aware is the emotional, behavioral, mental part of pain. In medicine for the last 300 years, we've focused on the biology of pain. You know, bad knee means pain, bad joint means pain. But we've left, we've left the psychosocial variables alone. We didn't really care a lot about depression or anxiety or any of those factors. They're becoming more mainstream. And then lately, social, right? We talk about social determinants of health. And so my point is that in my world, at least, and let me speak for myself, we are really good at bio for pain, but not psychosocial. So we have to shift that pendulum to understand that human being lives in an environment, has experiences, and there's a whole behavioral mental health component to this as well. And does that mean in terms of like your vision for the future of pain management that 
Is there a team approach or how do you see that we not only bring this to awareness, but make a shift in outcomes? For me, there's two things in there on opposite ends. On the one side, the research is very, very clear. The more complex a human's pain experience is, meaning they've had it for a long time, it's spreading, they've had multiple providers, the more complex it gets, the more multidisciplinary it must be. One profession, one provider, one approach never will have that answer alone. On the flip side, I do want to say this, that I think the future is to empower the person. If you go to PubMed today and you search for health literacy, you're going to get quite a few hits on there. But if you go search for pain literacy, you're going to find zero. Our team has been working really hard on the idea of increasing pain literacy. Can we make people smarter about pain so when they do experience pain, they go, oh, I got it. The guy with a funny accent explained it. I'm going to be okay, right? So I think it's on both ends. The providers must, we must work more together as a team to learn from each other to help. But on the flip side, can we empower the person that is dealing with it more and more so they develop self-efficacy ways that, you know, I can do this. I can take care of this. I love what you're talking about because this is really where my work is going. Just how do we bring that, what I'm calling self-health care, right? So it is patient literacy up a notch or two or three so that patients can be better partners in their own health care, right? We have developed a very hierarchical model of health care where the patient has lost their agency. So what does pain literacy look like to you? Are there ways in? Is there a way that you're thinking about it? Are there factors that are most important? I mean, I'm thinking education is key, but how do you think about pain literacy? That's a really good question. And so, yeah, easy answer. Our team focuses on pain education. Can we teach people more about pain? So we teach healthcare providers. We've taught middle school kids in nine different states. We teach community-based members, patients, et cetera. So first thing is we can increase your knowledge so you know more about pain, this thing that's affecting you. But with that comes the behavioral aspects, sleep hygiene, nutrition, mindfulness, relaxation. There are behaviors that can be adopted that are healthier behaviors when it comes to a pain experience. And need I say it today, I'm actually really excited because the younger generation tend to gravitate naturally towards these approaches more than us old guys like me. They care about what they eat. They care about sleeping. They care about work-life balance, those kinds of things. And I think that's important. Education by itself, the famous quote, you know, the education by itself is like throwing wet spaghetti at a brick to behavior change. You cannot explain pain out of people, but you can teach them so they understand, which makes them move, which makes them exercise, which makes them sleep better, those kinds of things. You change behavior through education plus teaching them strategies to move along that continuum of a pain experience. Yeah, I love that. I I always think of it as the risk-reward, right? Until the patient understands the risk-reward, then they're just doing it for you because you told them to. And that's not an educated way to make change. Once they own the understanding and they know I'm making this decision, this is the risk-reward of that decision, then there's more agency, then there's more empowerment, and then there's a more higher likelihood of that change to occur. I know I challenged you with trying 
trying to like bring it down to the minor things that we can talk about. But I found this conversation fascinating and really helpful to all of us. I'm wondering if there's anything else that you would like to share with us in this format, knowing that there are clinicians listening that's true about pain neuroscience that we may be getting all wrong. I think the one that jumps out at me, the one that I like teaching students all the time is that pain that is understood is not to be feared. And if we understand more about pain, we become less afraid of it, which means it allows us to move more, function more, and move on with our life, which increases self-efficacy. So I think that's a critical part. If we could just teach people more about why they hurt and how it works and what they can do, we're going to move the needle, no doubt. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Adrian. I really appreciate your work. You're welcome. Thank you. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.